Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Anita Diamond is the author most recently of Period, End of Sentence, A New Chapter in the Fight for Menstrual Justice. She is a novelist, journalist, essayist, and the author of five guidebooks to contemporary Jewish life. She is most known, well, I think her most known book is called The Red Tent, which was published in 1997, which I loved at the time. Anita was born in Brooklyn, New York, and grew up in Newark, New Jersey, until she was 12 when she moved to Denver, Colorado. She graduated from Washington University in St. Louis with a degree in comparative literature and earned a master's in American literature from Binghamton University in upstate New York. In 1975, she moved to Boston and began her journalism career, writing for the Boston Phoenix, the Boston Globe, and Boston Magazine before expanding out to parenting, parents, McCalls, and Ms. Her feature stories and columns covered a wide variety of topics, from reported essays to first-person essays and more. Her first book was The New Jewish Wedding, published in 1985, and she wrote five other guidebooks, including The New Jewish Baby Book, Living a Jewish Life, Jewish Traditions, Customs, and Values for Today's Families, Choosing a Jewish Life, a handbook for people converting to Judaism and their family and friends, Saying Kaddish, How to Comfort the Dying, Bury the Dead, and Mourn as a Jew, and How to Raise a Jewish Child. The Red Tent came out in 1997 and was inspired by a few lines from Genesis. The novel tells the story of an obscure and overlooked character named Dinah, the only daughter of Jacob and Leah. The Red Tent became a word-of-mouth bestseller thanks to reader recommendations, book groups, and support from independent bookstores. 
In 2001, the Independent Bookstore Alliance honored The Red Tent as the year's Book Sense Best Fiction. The Red Tent has been published in more than 25 countries, including Australia, England, Finland, France, and Germany, and many, many more. In 2014, the novel was adapted as a two-part, four-hour miniseries by Lifetime TV. Her second novel was called The Good Harbor. The Last Days of Dogtown was next, then Day After Night, The Boston Girl, and that came out in 1990. Over the past few years, Anita has revised and updated three of her books about Jewish life, The Jewish Wedding Now, which is a new renamed edition of The New Jewish Wedding, and Choosing a Jewish Life, the handbook about conversion to Judaism and St. Kaddish. She is the founding president of Mayim Hayim Living Waters Community Mikvah and Education Center in Newton, Mass., a reinvention of the ancient Jewish tradition of mikvah ritual immersion in water. And today she's going to talk about her latest book, period, end of sentence, and many other things. Welcome, Anita. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss period, end of sentence, and the red tent, and all the amazing things that you've written and done and all of it. (laughs) Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, Okay. So your latest book, period, end of sentence, a new chapter in the fight for menstrual justice. I know this is based on the documentary, which won the Oscar. And I actually started watching a bit of it just to, you know, see what it was all about. I definitely remember when it won the Oscar and tell me how that became this book. Well, I watched it. I watched the Oscars and I remember jumping off the couch when they won. I thought, wow. And I watched the documentary the next day. It's on Netflix. I think it's now on YouTube for people who want to watch it. And I was very impressed. I had written about menstrual justice issues a little bit as a columnist. So it's a topic I was familiar with. And then I got a phone call from my agent saying that the people who had done the film were interested in having a book done, not about the same thing exactly, but in tandem, inspired by. And so I said, I'd be interested in talking about it. And I signed on and that's what kept me busy. Thank God through all of COVID. (laughs) Wow. So that's, so did, did you start it right? Had you already begun or what was the timing like? I had begun, but really kind of at one of my editors said gathering string, just really kind of trying to figure out what the, the scope of it was, which is gigantic. And then COVID shut everything down. So, you know, any thoughts of traveling or, you know, doing a lot of in-person interviews went out the window. So this was very much an internet and on the phone research book. So, but it, I'm glad I had it to do. I don't know what I would have done with myself otherwise. I'm sure you would have figured something out. Mm, I don't know. You've that. written so many books. <laughs> I know you start this book by saying that so many people after the red tent came out, which by the way, I read and loved at the time. So hats off to you for that project. Had said to you, they wish they had a red tent. They wish they had a place where they could just go and sort of honor the rhythms of their own body and just, you know, take a time out if you will. And of course, nothing slows us down, barely even childbirth these days, honestly. (laughs) You know, I'm like, does anything slow down when you have kids? Not really. You know, the emails don't stop. So tell me about the feedback you got from that and how that has dovetailed into this project. I was always a little taken aback by people saying, I wish I had a red tent because it immediately thought to me, that was like going back in time, a red tent, the red tent time that I, I mean, I invented that red tent. That's not based on historical, archaeological fact. It's possible. It's not impossible. But, you know, I invented the way it happened and what happened inside the red tent and all that. And I, you know, I, nostalgia for the ancient past gives me the creeps, to be honest, you know, anytime before anesthesia and, and, (laughs) and literacy and antibiotics, 
does not appeal to me or my choices. I, you know, I'm not really willing to give up any of my choices. But as I, I think I said in the book that after doing all of this research, I realized it wasn't so much the literal tent, although people were kind of joking about they wish they had a place they could go, but it was really about wishing there was a way, you know, more underlying desire for a way to honor the body and to acknowledge that women's bodies, that women who have, that people with uteruses have a different, you know, have different needs and that they are ignored, not acknowledged. And we don't either acknowledge them in any way. We have no, well, we have no method for, for doing that, nor do we really have the language to do that in a way that's meaningful. So I've sort of come around <laughs> to understanding what that desire means. And I don't jump on people about it anymore. Well, that's, that's good, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I didn't jump on them. I would just, no, no, I'm kidding. I'm... I, would make, I would make a joke out of it. You know, I, I, you know, I don't want to live in a time before I would have been dead in the red tent giving birth to my daughter when I gave birth to her. So, you know, no nostalgia for that, but nor is there nostalgia for us in, in Western civilization for such a place, because they're really in our cultures and not just Western, but in, in some Eastern traditions as well, there was no honoring the rhythms of the body that bleeds. I was really struck in the book that you said, I think the statistic was something like 800 million people are menstruating any, at any given time mm-hmm. right now. Right. And yet there is such a stigma still attached and a, a whole shameful element to it. And even in the documentary, you know, girls oh. are giggling and not willing to talk about it. And, you know, it goes into much more dire issues that happen as a result of having your period and menstruating or whatever you want to call it. Both, both, both. <laughs> so I know you tackled why it's shameful given that half the population basically has this happen. What's like the two second root of that? Like, give us the the headline of why is this such a big deal? I mean, obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously anything. Why did this become such a big deal in our culture or in the world, really? Misogyny, patriarchy. <laughs> Those are you know big words that cover a lot of a lot of theories and a lot of religious traditions and a lot of distrust and and ignorance, actually, of what's happening in in the body. But, you know, we live in a culture, the menstruation is called the curse still, although, you know, not so much in polite society. But when you say the curse, you're not talking about anything except menstruation. And if you say the curse, that means the people who are, who are bleeding, who have periods are cursed in some way. And people who are cursed are a danger. And this is very subconscious. I mean, this is not People aren't going around, oh, she's she's cursed. And if I go near her, you know, my hands will wither. But that is part of our our Western tradition. Um, and actually, it's not so old and ancient. A friend of mine told me that her grandmother told her that if she took a shower while she was menstruating, she would never have a baby. And that's so we're, it's not so far. It's it's the 20th century, right? In America. So it's not it's not a, you know, a global South problem. It's not a problem of over there and out there. But the way we think about how women's reproductive systems work is with disdain, ignorance, discomfort at the very least. And people suffer as a result of that, sometimes in ways that are manageable and sometimes in ways that are really not manageable. Especially as you mentioned, the poverty project, the and how period poverty rather, and how right. it can really, I mean, to not the one quote you had from a woman who said she was using a towel because they couldn't afford pads. Right. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing. I mean, it's like really, it's hard to imagine the scope of it really globally mm-hmm. when you think about it. Right, and, right. and also what we can do is sort of a more, or just what we all can do individually and as a society to help out 
people who are still struggling with that. And there's there are efforts on every possible level from high school girls collecting products to give to their local shelter and to the local food pantry where these products are always in demand and there are never enough of them to, you know, recently Vermont, for example, just, I mean, in the last week, got rid of the sales tax on period products. And it's, it's often called the tampon tax, but that's really in the snowmer. It's every state, every in many cities charge sales tax and they decide what they're going to charge it on. And in a lot of states, Viagra is not taxed. In some states, in Louisiana, Mardi Gras beads are not taxed, but tampons and pads are taxed. So they are taxed as luxuries, as not necessities. So we if we have we have to stop thinking about period products as optional. <laughs> it's not something you just are on a whim. Oh, I think I'll buy some, you know, some tampons today. I haven't, I haven't bought any in a while. The cupboard is bare. You, you only buy them if you need them. So it's a necessity and they should be in every single bathroom, wherever you go. And if people who are listening, whenever you go into the bathroom in your library or your supermarket or your art museum or your best friend's bathroom, you should be looking for period products to see if they're there. And once you start putting that on your radar screen, you realize they're not there. There's toilet paper, right? We're not walking around with toilet paper or paper towels to dry our hands, but this is not, this is considered your problem, you know, your, you know, your issue. And if you run out, it's your problem. So and you stuff, yeah. for people who feel inspired to help sort of solve this problem, what would you recommend they do? Well, lots of things. One of them, actually, when I started working on this, I went to the went to a local art museum and there were in the ladies' room, there were baskets, one with pads and one with tampons. And I thought, wow. And then I realized I didn't have any on the on the vanity in my bathroom when, when I have guests. And while I have very few people who visit me who use my bathroom who need them, the idea of putting them out there, I hope, inspires other people to do that as well. So that we normalize this is on a very micro level, that we normalize the fact that. Half of the world at some point in their lives is going to have a period and they're going to need stuff and we should be supplying them just as we supply toilet paper. So that's one thing you can do. Another thing you can do is support programs in your own city that supply products to people in need. You can support legislative efforts, which are happening everywhere to get rid of sales tax on these products. And also, and the Massachusetts, I mean, the Boston area. So the Massachusetts legislature is considering law to make sure that there are period products in all the schools, right? In every public school. And I, th I think you can mandate them in private schools as well. And that means that a kid who needs a product and finds herself without something in the bathroom doesn't have to stuff toilet paper down her pants and panic, nor does that person have to ask for a pass to go to the nurse, which sort of medicalizes this problem. And also, what if the nurse doesn't have any? Because you know what? If the nurse has them, she bought them because it's not on the budget in school. So there are lots of things we can do as individuals, as citizens. We can support programs like the PAD Project, which is working to provide products and also education and also legislative change all over the world, including in the United States. So there's lots we can do as individuals and as groups of mothers and just groups of people as well. And once you get sensitized to it, you know, you're going to find it in the newspaper all the time. You're going to you're going to hear stories about this all the time. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help And I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy. And you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. So how did you become a writer? Because you've (laughs) written about so many, you know, you've written a memoir, you've written, which is like a collection of essays. You've written books like this. You've written historical fiction, even though you made it up. I guess it's still historical. No, no. It's historical. All historical historical fiction is made up. up. I know. Okay. (laughs) Based on a time. I know. Okay. That was a stupid thing. I take it back. I delete it. Um, I was just thinking, you know, you were saying how you had totally made up the resonance. So does that still count? But yes, Yes. it counts. It It counts. counts. It counts. It counts. It says a novel on the front. You know, it's like, this is not fiction. This is not history. Right. (laughs) Yes, of course. And other novels as well. I have the Boston girl and I had read what was the one about the girls the girls come home or there's day after night there's last days of Dogtown, yes and good harbor there are five novels it was day after night good after night yes and of course all these Jewish books and I mm-hmm. have had now two Jewish weddings in fact my husband my second husband converted to Judaism so I was really interested in your mikvah the mikvah organization you started because I went to his mikvah by the way in mm-hmm. New York City so I just wanted to know how you kind of got started how you used your sort of Jewish identity to write a bunch of Jewish themed books and just writing in general. That's a big question, but you know, take it where you want. <laughs> Let's see. I was an English major, right? Complete lit and English. Anyway, when I moved to Boston after graduate school, I kind of fell into journalism. It wasn't a goal. I had never taken a journalism class. I'd never taken a creative writing class. I wrote a lot of papers. <laughs> I learned to do journalism on the job and I wrote a lot of 
long form journalism, which are sort of storytellings about a topic. And I really loved it. I loved writing for the public. I loved having an audience. I wanted to be an actress when I grew up, so I needed an audience. So this is my audience. My first book was The New Jewish Wedding, actually, because when I was getting married, I couldn't find a book that answered my questions. The books that existed were by Orthodox rabbis or by etiquette ladies, you know, how to match the tablecloth with matchbooks. Remember when there were matchbooks? Yes. Maybe you're too young to remember when there were matchbooks. I remember very well. Yes. Matchbooks. (laughs) (laughs) No more matchbooks. But so what I was learning about Jewish traditions that people were kind of reclaiming from the past and making them contemporary were really beautiful and inspiring. So that was my first book. It was a nonfiction guide for contemporary people like me and my friends who didn't necessarily know a whole lot about their Jewish background, their Jewish tradition. And actually, most of us don't know anything about life cycle events until it's our turn, right? So that was my first book. And then I wrote a second book because I had a baby girl and there were really no books about how to celebrate the arrival of a, of a Jewish daughter with the same kind of tradition and intention as is given a boy. So I wrote, and my friends who were having boys and were having brisses, but I didn't understand why or how could they make this meaningful. So, and then I said, no more Jewish books. I don't want to be typecast. But then I wrote Living a Jewish Life and Choosing a Jewish Life, which is about conversion, how to raise a Jewish child and saying Kaddish, which is about death and mourning practices. Now I'm done. I'm done. Finished. There's nothing else in that department. Although I've updated them. They've had to, I've updated the wedding book twice. I feel like you didn't, you should have done a book on bar mitzvahs. Well, that needs, you don't need a whole book. There's a book on this is stuff on that. Okay. All right. Fine. <laughs> I think I, I, it's not my, you know, cause then, yeah. Okay. I think that's up to individuals kind of in a way how they celebrate that. It's um, complicated, but I mentioned it in the, in how to raise a Jewish child and living a Jewish life as well. So it's part of the life cycle. It's part of the life cycle. And then how did you get into fiction? Let's see. And I was doing journalism. I was writing for the Boston Phoenix and other national magazines. And I needed a challenge. So I thought I would try fiction. I, nobody was asking me to write a novel. And I had just turned 40 and I really needed a challenge. So I thought, okay. And I stole a story from the Bible, like so many hundreds of other people before me. And because I write about untold stories, largely women's lives, I knew it would be something about women. So I started out thinking I would write a novel about Rachel and and Leah and the conflict between the two first wives of Jacob and, you know, sort of what was really going on in that family. But I didn't have a plot. So I kept reading on till I found the story of Dina which is kind of a mystery because she doesn't say anything, totally silent. And to me, that was kind of a a doorway into it. So what was it like from her point of view? So I wrote this novel from her perspective, a very minor character in Genesis. And uh, I spent about two, three years while I was working on, on choosing a Jewish life, actually, and writing for local newspapers and working on this novel. And it wasn't that easy finding an agent because historical fiction wasn't selling at the time. But it found its audience and it found a wonderful publisher and women's reading groups and independent bookstores made it a bestseller. Hmm. And I'm forever grateful for that. So support your independent bookstore (laughs) and keep reading and buying books that your friends tell you are great. (laughs) Have you ever done an event or had a conversation with Suma Kidd? Because her book, The Book of Longing, is also based in the Bible, but from a different perspective with sort of meeting. I don't know. I feel like the two of you would have a very interesting conversation. You know, I wrote that book so long ago. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very much in the rear view mirror for me. So I get, I still get emails from people saying, you know, will you write another novel based on another woman in the Bible? And I certainly considered it, but you know, it's, um, it's a long time ago. So it's, it's not present in my life the way it is in readers' lives. 
And uh, I still get lovely emails from a lot from young people, high school students who continue to find it. And, and this is just remarkable. And I'm humbled. It makes them feel affirmed in, in their women's bodies as they grow up and in their agency as, as female human beings. So that's always terrific mail to get. Oh, sorry to keep bringing it up. No, no, no. I really don't mind. I really, you know, the reason they called me to write this book, to write the period book was because of the Red Tent, because they have, because the people of the Pad Project knew the Red Tent, loved the Red Tent, and were moved by the fact that, that women who were menstruating were not, were not ashamed that they were celebrating with one another. And that sort of speaks to the goal of the movement for menstrual justice that we we have to get rid of shame and we have to get rid of stigma and ignorance if we are going to fully come into our own as human beings. And so what are you excited about now? What are you working on next? We'll see what happens next. I mean, I've, I've spent the last few months talking to people about the book, yeah. which has been great. And there's always a fallow period in between. So I, I really couldn't tell you right now. I'm trying not to okay. put any pressure on myself just yet. I'm having the summer, <laughs> the, the, the post-COVID yes. on the beach talking to people in person. I had dinner with two friends last night in a restaurant. You know, I'm living my life for a few months. Good for you. I love <laughs> it. I love that. Okay. Last question. What advice would you give to aspiring authors? I think all writers give pretty much the same advice, which is read, <laughs> read deeply, broadly, read from different traditions, read from different periods in history, read books in translation, challenge yourself to read things that are hard. You know, I get inspiration from other art forms as well. I want to say the theater is a big form, source of information and dance and just all forms of storytelling, you know, theater and, and film in particular, they're sources of inspiration. So that's kind of it. I also think if you're, if you're writing and you're stuck, you should probably consider taking a class, not just, not so much in part to learn technique and things like that, but also it's very lonely. Writing is lonesome and it's very easy to talk yourself out of it. So it's really good to have colleagues and teachers and support and people who are kind <laughs> as you work along your way. So I think that that finding a community, writing is so lonely and solitary that, I mean, some people are fine with that, but for a lot of us, it's really helpful to have kind of a cheerleading squad of some kind. And it's not fair to ask your spouse. Really. I don't think. <laughs> I don't know. I ask my spouse about all the things I write. Well, about. I do too. I do too. But it's like, <laughs> you can't, <laughs> I know it's, you know, how many times can you ask someone to read a draft? Right. It's like, yeah, I, I try point. to wait, you know, I wait until very late in the process to, to ask Jim to, <laughs> to take a look at it. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Anita. Thanks for coming on. Moms don't have time to read books and it's delightful. What a great title, by the way. Congratulations thank you. on that. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Appreciate it. Well, have a great day and thanks for all your contributions. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. You have a good day too. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.